Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. My name is Rebecca. And we are two members of the JLU podcast team who enjoy analyzing the DC films from Warner Brothers Studios. Other contributors to this episode are Alessandro, Sydney, and Nick. You can find us individually on Twitter, and you can follow the show at JLU Podcast. In this episode, we are covering scene 15 of Justice League, which is a pretty big one. This is Diana's history lesson about Steppenwolf's prior invasion attempt and the big battle that happened there. And she is sharing this with Bruce as they walk around the lake. So definitely a big scene, a very memorable scene, um, especially for comic book fans. There's lots of stuff to harvest and look for in this scene, um, but also just a memorable one because it kind of gives this glimpse of a big epic scope of something way back in the past. In terms of the overall story, it obviously does a few things. It gives us backstory on Steppenwolf. So we just met him, and we saw what he did on Themyscira, um, but now we're filling in a little bit of the details about like where he's coming from and what his motivation is and stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of information about Steppenwolf in this, and I, I was confused about a few things, um, but I thought it did a pretty good job visually of just showing... Uh, that he was very ruthless. He he does kill a lot of people, whether it be Amazons or humans, or you know, going up against the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's very he's very um, scary and ruthless in this. You know, turning people into parademons and all of that. Um, so I think the sequence does a pretty good job. In addition to the the awesome you know Green Lantern Easter egg and all of that, mm-hmm. it does a good job with Steppenwolf to establish that he is somebody to be feared. Yeah, and they verbally say that, you know, he has done this on other planets, but we don't get to see him doing it on other planets. But I think the Green Lantern is a nice way to just tie in the fact that this is a cosmic threat that has actually gone around the universe and done this in other places. So um, they do kind of give some nods to the bigger scope, the universal kind of scope, rather than just an Earth-based kind of thing. Yeah, one of the things, though, that I was confused about with Steppenwolf is uh, initially when Diana starts her big speech talking about... Uh, the history of Steppenwolf. She she says they called him Steppenwolf, the end of worlds. Mm-hmm. And I was confused about that because I didn't know that Steppenwolf was called that, that he, he would be referred to as the end of worlds. I couldn't find any, maybe it's in the comic books, but I couldn't find any reference to that anywhere. Um, and so I was curious about the name Steppenwolf. So the only things I could find about the name were related to the Herman Hess a Steppenwolf novel. Hmm. Steppenwolf actually is, uh, let's see, it's a German name. Uh, so it comes from the name Steppenwolf, S-T-E-P-P-E, um, and it's a kind of wolf. It's like a subspecies of a gray wolf. Uh, some people may know it by the name Caspian Sea Wolf. So I thought it was interesting that Steppenwolf actually comes from a wolf. That's like, hmm. that's what the the name means. So uh, I went from confused about the end of world's name to seeing uh, why Steppenwolf could be seen as such a a, a hunter a little mm-hmm. bit that he was he was knocking all these people down. He's he's based off uh, a wolf, uh, you know, uh, an animal that yeah. could uh, really cause some damage if uh, it, it wanted to. Yeah, and I do think of wolf as kind of roaming a little bit, um, and especially like a lone wolf or something, and they might have their territory, but they're kind of like expanding their territory when they need to. And that sort of fits with the idea of Steppenwolf being the invader that Darkseid sends out to be kind of like the first, you know, the first force that arrives onto a new planet to invade it or take it over. So to me, that kind of fits with the idea of Wolf. But for me, Steppenwolf, other than the comics, I just think of the band, like the rock band oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. from like the 60s. Uh, and I think that that rock band predates Jack Kirby, 
like actually creating the Steppenwolf character because I think Jack Kirby created Steppenwolf in 1972, and I'm pretty sure the Steppenwolf band was like from the 60s. Hmm. So that's what I think of. But the Herman Hesse novel, I believe, was was that yeah, that should be way earlier because Herman Hesse was like early 20th century. I think. Yeah, the book, uh, his Steppenwolf book, was uh, published in 1927. Okay, so that's definitely the first the first main instance of it, yeah. Yeah, so other than just Germ- the German words, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I don't. I guess they they just call him the End Worlds in this movie. You know, that's a that's an original uh, original concept to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. That I don't know that anyone else calls him the End of Worlds anywhere else, but it does make him sound very ominous, and it does tie back to what he's trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean the the whole invasion angle is pretty clear. You know, that's kind of it's clear enough for the general audience that you can tell, okay, this is an invasion force. They're going to kind of terraform Earth into, you know, making it into Steppenwolf's home planet, which we know as Apocalypse. Um, so I think that's pretty clear. Uh, and I do like how the scene starts because the scene opens up with Steppenwolf himself just driving his axe down into the Earth and then the Earth kind of like being fire and destruction kind of coming out, emanating out from his axe. And I think that's a nice way to start the scene because... Steppenwolf is the person that we've seen before on Themyscira. And so we start from him and then we pull out and then realize, oh, there's all these spaceships and there's these other things and there's the mother boxes and the priestesses and stuff. But the scene starts from Steppenwolf, the guy that we've seen, and he's doing a move, the old axe driving it into the ground that we've seen him do before. So it's some nice continuity from the previous scene with him. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess you could see it if you were just watching the movie for the first time, you would just see him alone on Themyscira but here he comes with an invasion army with a you know a, a, some sort of aerial spaceship kind of like almost looking like a jumbo jet slash spaceship and and all these other people who are coming with him um, so it does make it a, a bigger threat that it's not just him anymore he has an entire army Right. Yeah, we saw, you know, before he had a few parademons flying around, but it seemed like the Amazons could have handled the parademons without too much trouble. But yeah, all of these, the space invasion force uh, is a whole nother level of danger, but it all is centered around Steppenwolf. So he's kind of the personification of the invasion. But now we get to see the full scope of what this invasion force can look like. Yeah, they're, they're enough of a threat that it <laughs> requires all of humans, all of Atlanteans, or at least a good chunk of them and uh the amazons to get together even with the gods with Ares and who else zeus i think is there mm-hmm. Ar- artemis i think is present on yeah. so the gods have to join in as well so he's he's a big enough threat that they would have to call all of those people in together to fight him yeah and there's some nice connections to the comic book origins about him being the invading kind of you know lieutenant or whatever of dark side and they don't develop it in the movie really but we can infer that it's Darkseid's uncle, or there's no reason to think that he's not still Darkseid's uncle. You know, they definitely don't develop as much Apocalypse stuff as they could have, um, but hopefully we get a movie in the future from Ava DuVernay that will develop the New Gods kind of thing. And maybe they've left her some more creative room by not going too far into, like, the rest of Darkseid's family, like Granny Goodness or Calback back on Apocalypse and other kind of people. But, I mean, I think just the idea of him being you know, working for Apocalypse and being the invasion leader, that is just on that kind of top-level view consistent with the comic books. Yeah, they do more to develop his mission and what he's doing there than actually develop him as a a character. Right, I would agree on that, yeah, because I was really looking forward to um, some interesting dynamics between Darkseid and Steppenwolf, like 
Steppenwolf is oppressed by Darkseid, but also Steppenwolf is trying to oppress, you know, the people of Earth. Um, and having that kind of dynamic would have been really interesting, but we didn't really get that at all. Um, we got a little bit of him, you know, wanting to return to Mother and that sort of thing, but it was kind of vague. Um, and I didn't know as much what to make sense of it, so. Yeah, I'm I'm a little confused about the Mother boxes as well. Yeah, and um, we have uh, some things about Steppenwolf from Alessandro. So um, he, Alessandro, brought up Kieran Hines, the actor who plays it, and um, a quote from Kieran Hines about the character is that Steppenwolf is, quote, an impressive figure. You can tell he's an interplanetary marauder. His look is almost kilted with boots and a helmet with wings or horns. He wishes to create fear. I think he gets pleasure out of it. He's lethal. He's come to Earth to seek revenge. Um, so there's a mention of the fear angle um, that was kind of threaded through Justice League that um, the parademons, you know, can smell fear. Um, and so here... Darkseid is creating fear, and the parademons are also tuned into the fear. But also, Kieran Hines is just kind of saying the basic thing that we've already covered, which is that he's an invasion force. Right. Alessandro also um, was looking at the Man of Steel bonus content from Man of Steel and notices that in the extra material there, there's a U.S. government reverse-engineered a translation of Kryptonian data. So the scout ship had all this Kryptonian info on it in Man of Steel. And then the U.S. government was trying to decrypt that data, and they found this text that reads, We remember those who fell during the last war. And so if you think about the comic books, that could refer to the Kryptonian last war, which is from the pre-crisis era of comics. Um, And so Alessandro says, okay, that's probably just a little nod to the last war um, of the Kryptonians. But Alessandro said it'd be kind of cool to think about it as that last war was something an apocalyptic siege or like if people from apocalypse or steppenwolf were trying to invade other worlds um, it would be interesting if that was kind of a past war that the kryptonians knew about um, so alessandro's kind of looking for universe threads and way to connect things back to man of steel from the beginning especially if we think about karazor el's ship from the man of steel prequel comic that has been on earth for tens of thousands of years and so it'd be interesting to find out if there was like some kryptonian knowledge of the apocalypse threat to the universe, that sort of thing, could um, tie some of this all together a little bit. Yeah, and doesn't Jor-El, I mean, Jor-El and Lara in Man of Steel, they have knowledge of Earth. So I imagine that they would have been able to learn about a war like that if it was this big of a scale. They they may know about that war. So it's a cool thought. Yeah, if they were just researching Earth and its history, they might have seen that it had this uh, invasion attempt from uh, Apocalypse or... Krypton maybe just is aware of Apocalypse and knows that, oh, that's a spacefaring species that is actually kind of, uh, you know, violent and is oppressive to other planets. So Krypton, if they are keeping up their database about space, they would hopefully know about that kind of stuff. That's true. Not only would they possibly know about, well, they did know about Earth, but they also possibly could know about Apocalypse as well. That's a cool thought. Yeah. Now, you mentioned before um, that we see Steppenwolf actually creating parademons. Like, he not only will kill people and do that, but he can turn them into parademons. To me, that seems like an underutilized fact about this villain, like that people can turn into parademons. We see that it happens, but it never becomes really central to the plot. Yeah, and one of my biggest questions about parademons is can they be transformed out of those demons are they just parademons for life do are they is it kind of like a zombie thing where once you become a zombie you no longer have any sense of who your former self was or who who you loved who your friends were 
you were just kind of a mindless being or did you have some sort of uh, you still left in you? So I, I wish that the, the film had explored more about the parademons, even though it's kind of a gruesome thought, you know, that these people become uh, these horrible creatures that just uh, operate on fear and violence. But I do have questions about, you know, if once once an Amazon turns into a parademon, does she still have knowledge of who she is? Does she yeah. still have knowledge of the Amazons or the mascara? Uh, but they don't really go into detail about that. They just say, oh, they become parademons and then they become, you know, nightmare creatures who who feed on fear. So I think that, you know, that does go back to the the idea of using fear throughout the, the movie. Mm-hmm. I also think it's... Uh, there's multiple times in the scene they sort of have throwbacks to the nightmare sequence from Batman v Superman, mm-hmm. and I think it's a real loss that I think that they they could have gone there, but they do, they do call them nightmare creatures, hmm. um, which they did feature in the nightmare sequence in Batman v Superman. Yeah, I mean, as soon as the the ground was kind of burning up and turning, you know, to dust, sort of thing, uh, it's a great opportunity to connect to the nightmare, like. To me, immediately, that gives me the the image there. So you could say it's like implicitly connected to the nightmare sequence. Like, oh, if this invasion was successful, you would end up with a landscape that looks like BVS nightmare sequence. But they don't explicitly make that connection. You know, it's we can kind of try to grasp for that connection, but they didn't bring it home into this movie. Yeah, it's, it's just so unfortunate when I when I go back and I rewatch that because the parademons are referred to as nightmare creatures, which could refer to the nightmare sequence. Mm-hmm. We, we learned that Steppenwolf might have come to Earth to transform it into Apocalypse, which looks like it happened in the nightmare sequence. Mm-hmm. There's an aerial shot of the, um, the, the Omega burned into the landscape, much like the one in the nightmare sequence in, in BVS. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, uh, it's upsetting to me that there's no follow-up to that because yeah. that the nightmare sequence was intended, it was built into BVS to be something that pushed towards Justice League when Justice League came in. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's strange to me that they, they wouldn't go back to it. And this is, in this scene, it's Bruce Wayne hearing about the invasion attempt and what it would kind of look like and what its purpose was. And he is the actual person who saw the nightmare sequence like right. from BVS. So this would be a chance for him to say to Diana, like, oh, you know, you're sharing this information with me. Well, let me share some information with you. I've actually seen a vision. I'm not sure what it was, but it, maybe it's a potential future where that's exactly what Earth looked like. It looked like this had happened, you know, but he doesn't mention it at all, like that he has kind of seen something. He does say, you know, like, oh, yeah, the parademons are everywhere. You know, I've been tracking the parademons. I've had some encounters with them. But he doesn't say, also, I saw the parademons in this nightmare sequence. Yeah, it's... uh. I, I guess they they wanted to to drop all connections to to BVS that they could, but um, but I think it's interesting uh, just looking back at it with all of the things that happened with this movie that those things still remained in there. I thought that was um, it was something that I didn't connect uh, in before in previous viewings, so it, it jumped out more to me uh, as I was preparing for this scene by scene analysis. Yeah, I want to go back to what you mentioned about the parademons, and you're just kind of wondering. You know, what's their mental state? What memories do they have after they're turned? Is there any hope for them? Or are they just gone once they're turned to parademons? Um, And I mentioned how 
the threat of people being turned to parademons was not really paid off. Like you have the scientists that were kidnapped. You could have had some of them turning into parademons and Mm -hmm. that sort of changes the threat and the nature of the threat a little bit, especially when it's loved ones that might be turning into parademons. You could have Amazons turn into parademons on Themyscira, um, something like that. That Russian family, you could have turned them all to parademons. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like kind of, it didn't explore. So in a team up superhero movie, you do need to have some sort of minion that the team can be fighting, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So I totally understand, just practically speaking, you have to have some sort of generic danger villain um, just to be able to kick around and, you know, for the fight scenes. But you could make them interesting. Uh, And so the the Parademon design, I think, is pretty good. I like the design. I like how they move. I like how they fight and interact. But you could have added an extra little wrinkle that made them more interesting, like... What is their mental life? Uh, is there any hope for them? Is it actually people we know who are in parademons now? Like that would have just added a little more interesting elements to it. Oh, I agree. What if one of the Amazons that we have gotten to know over the course of, you know, Wonder Woman and and Justice League? What if one of those Amazons became a parademon? That would have changed things. Uh, so I I agree that it's a, it seems like a missed opportunity to dig a little bit deeper in them. But I I'm with you. I think the parademon design is awesome. They look like these bugged demons, and that's exactly what they should look like. So uh, just the way they fly and the way they look and the the texture, what they're wearing, it's it's all very well done. But I I agree in terms of the writing, it it could be a little stronger. Yeah, and if you go with me for a second, it could be connected to some of the bigger themes of the movie. So like one of the themes we've talked about is stronger together or just isolation versus sort of like collaboration. Um, and that the collaboration is the stronger. You need the unity. You need to have friends, allies with you um, in order to win the day. But the parademons angle could actually be used to really explore the theme because if you have more people with you, but they can be turned into the allies of your enemy, now it's sort of like, well, the more allies I have or the more connections and collaborations I have, that's actually just more people that could eventually turn against me and become you know, the allies of the opposite side and that to me is actually it's not just about a superhero movie that's also sort of a question you have to ask yourself with like um isolation versus human connection if you make human connections you have to realize that you are opening yourself up up to possibly losing those connections Mm. you could lose the person to death you could lose the person because you just have a falling out Um, and so every time you sort of make a connection with somebody there is always that risk of oh this could actually turn sour and i could actually lose them and you know, sometimes you you maybe think, oh, I should have just isolated myself and then I would never have loss or I would never have the, the negative side of losing somebody. Um, but you, you have to kind of trade that off. And most often you'll sort of think like, well, the, the connection and that human relationship is worth it. It's worth the risk of possibly losing them. Yeah, it's the old owner of a lonely heart is better than the, the owner with a broken heart hmm. uh, kind of a thing. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So are you suggesting that maybe the parademons or the, let's say an Amazon was turned into a parademon, then they could then be turned from a parademon back into an Amazon? Is that what you're getting at? Maybe or maybe not. I just think that the fact that your former ally, like maybe one of Diana's you know sisters from Themyscira, that was one of her allies, but now she has become an ally on the other side. To me, that just complexifies this idea of what's stronger, collaboration or isolation. Oh, okay. Well, collaboration seems obviously stronger, but maybe it's not so obvious if your collaboration means you're actually opening up people to 
get kind of corrupted, you know, so. Gotcha. Uh, I'm just thinking of it on the spot, but yeah, I definitely, I think we can all agree a little bit more intrigue or depth to the parademons would be good, but I also would like it if they could kind of connect it, like let Terrio loose and have him actually connect it to the main themes of the movie. Yes. Or just stop rewriting his stuff. Maybe. But, uh, we, um, we can keep going. Um, well, can I can I actually um, just add to that since we're since we're talking about Terrio and and what might have gotten caught? One of the things I found myself uh, attached to when I was rewatching the scene was Diana says that um, when Steppenwolf came in, there was a, there was a darkness that would cover the earth. Oh yeah, and uh, of course when when I looked at that, I mean darkness I think is obviously a connection to dark side. Um, but it, the idea that Steppenwolf would return with the, when the darkness would cover the earth, I think is a really interesting thing that, again, they put in the scene, but it didn't really come to fruition. It didn't really have a payoff. So the idea is that Steppenwolf comes back to earth. He comes in for another invasion when darkness is over the earth. Mm-hmm. And at this point in the story, in the story of all these films, the darkness is that Superman is dead. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, discussion of the world losing hope and the world being a world without hope because Superman is dead. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the timing of why Steppenwolf comes in. And so the idea of a darkness in this scene uh, seems like it would have played as more of a, a thematic uh, element in Terrio's version of the script. And I hate to be like a, well... You know, thinking about what wasn't there, I I, I guess we should more so uh, analyze the scene. But I do think it's interesting to bring up that there was a Hope Never Dies poster video that they used as a promotional tool before the movie came out in November mm-hmm. 2017. Mm-hmm. And it's this speech slash monologue from Lois, and she says the world has grown dark. Mm-hmm. And while we have reason to fear, we have the strength not to. There are heroes among us to remind us that only from fear comes courage, that only from the darkness can we truly feel uh, feel the light. Mm-hmm. And I think if they had continued with Terrio's script, my hunch is that he would have connected the arrival of Steppenwolf bringing the darkness at the time of the world's darkness. Mm-hmm. You would then um, uh, combine that with Superman's return and him bringing back the light. Yeah. So it does make me wish for things that could have been, because I think, because we've cause sort of talked on JLU Podcast a little bit about how it's been difficult to latch onto themes in mm-hmm. this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that could have been one of the themes in the original script was the interplay between darkness and light. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought back up that promotional material, because I think that does hint at some stuff that was maybe there before. I think that the darkness and light is still here in the movie, but it just doesn't like ring as true as like the themes in BVS or as rich, I guess you could say. Like, you know, they do with the montage of a world without Superman that is trying to show the darkness in the world. And then we lack unity right now. We're very partisan. We're kind of, you know, very separated. And so that's exposing us to invasion metaphorically or, you know, literally in the case of Steppenwolf. And so I think it's there and like, okay, that's why he came back and we need to unify again. We need to find our connections to like defeat this. And then there is light at the end. I think it's there, but I think what you're referring to is kind of just missing the BVS kind of sense of, wow, like the more you look at the theme, the more coherent and just all encompassing it is for the film as a work of art. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that BVS was written so well that you could parse from different sections of the movie and they would all interconnect. And so I just think it's a it's a missed opportunity to um, have the opposite of the darkness in Steppenwolf and not really make that about Superman and the light. I mean, he does come back from the dead. He does help them out. But I, I don't think they hit that hard enough in the movie to get, you know, the ret- return of the light fights, you know, the darkness. Uh, so it just, uh, it really stuck out to me that they they talked about Steppenwolf's arrival being in the, when the darkness happens on Earth. So uh, that was a, a very intriguing part of this scene for me. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, let's talk about the mother boxes a little bit, because that, you know, in addition to Steppenwolf, there's also the mother boxes, which are kind of a, a main element of the villain, the threat here. Um, the three, there's these three mother boxes, but they come together to form the unity. And that unity is the one that can actually kind of just reform the entire planet, or that's how I took it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of confused about the mother boxes. They, they talk about how the mother boxes contain power uh, that don't necessarily just contain power, that they are power. And so they do give a description of what the mother boxes are and how powerful they are, but it doesn't really, um, I'm confused about the relationship between those and like when they have to be separated out. I guess it's it's because everything is too powerful. They've got to separate them. But I don't know if they made that as as detailed for me or explicit because they don't really say it. Basically, they just have mother boxes are powerful and they can destroy the earth. But uh, where do they come from? What you know? What is Steppenwolf's relationship to them? What who are these priestesses who have the mother boxes? Um, do they have a special relationship to the power of the mother boxes? So I am a little confused about all of that because I don't think they described it enough. And I, especially the relationship to the, the mother boxes that we see throughout the, the movie. So I don't know. For me, it didn't, I, I don't know as much about the mother boxes as I think I should. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think it's definitely... I think for an average moviegoer, especially if they had not had any exposure to the mother boxes before, they would just be this vague object that can, yeah, destroy or reform the world and seems very powerful and important, but also seems kind of weird. Like, Steppenwolf talks to Mother. Is Mother the mother box? But then, like, in this scene, the priestesses are kind of, like, ushering it forward and then they combine, and they don't seem to be, like entities that you would talk to and have a conversation with they seem to be like powerful mechanisms or something like that um, at a higher technological level than we're aware of or something the steppenwolf is like the only one who in a couple scenes like talks to it or refers to it you know as if it has feelings or something like that so yeah that i wasn't quite sure what to make of it people who watch this movie and are familiar with the comic books or dc you know universe and animated movies or whatever they also might be confused because the mother boxes there are more like a kind of supercomputer that can open up portals and stuff like that. Right. But it wasn't, you know, the mother boxes in the comics, at least that I've read, it's not about, you know, like turning over a planet or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, they kind of like drew a little bit from here, a little bit from there. They do have the portal to the mother box, but in like the Themyscira scene. But yeah, it's definitely a kind of a mishmash of a lot of things. And I'm not sure, too, if there is one consistent line that we should try to draw through them or if we should just sort of like admit that it's sort of a mishmash of several different things the main thing i guess we would need to know is they have the power to destroy but also to kind of reform and that 
so that's what makes it able to like bring Superman back to life. But maybe when they bring him back to life, he's maybe imbued with different kinds of traits and personalities because he might be getting apocalyptian kind of flavor to him when he's back. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I I understand that uh, they destroy worlds and then will reshape them into apocalypse. I understand that. I guess the. And I like your point about how um, the effect with the mother box could, uh, um, the inter- interaction with the mother box could affect Clark and make him more apocalyptic. I like that thought. Um, but Diana mentions that there was temptation in using the power of the mother boxes, and that's why they're separated. And I just, I guess that plays into part of my confusion about how they're used because I don't know if the Amazons or the Atlanteans or the humans. Would they know how to operate the mother boxes? Could they, mm-hmm. what what could they have done with those? So I, I guess that's a nitpick and that's yeah. a, probably a really silly thing to think about. But it just um, thinking about why they had to go separate them out and bury them underground and all of that. Yeah. I just, uh, I don't, I don't know how they would have used it. Yeah. And it's also not explicitly clear about what the capabilities are of the individual mother boxes versus the unity. Like, I mean, they do say when it, when the three come together and make the unity, then that's when your planet is really in trouble. So that is clear. Yeah. But what's not clear is the individual mother boxes. Like, okay, what is, what is an individual mother box capable of, you know, is, can make a boom tube. It can make a cyborg. Like what else can it do? Yeah. It's kind of vague on the separate or unified kind of thing. Um, Speaking of the three, Alessandro noticed that, um, he views them as kind of one red mother box, a yellow mother box, and then there's one that's kind of whitish with kind of a blue overtone. So if you call that red, yellow, and blue, Alessandro noticed those are the colors that are in Superman's costume. So that's kind of an <laughs> interesting little connection. Um, they also happen to be, you know, just some pretty common primary colors. Right, yeah. But that's that's a cool thought. I like that. Yeah, so they are power. Uh, power is a key word from our past analyses. Um, like power is a, a big thing in BVS. Um, Bruce feeling powerless, Lex feeling powerless, especially relative to Superman, and how do people deal with power, um, that sort of thing. Uh, so it's interesting to bring the word power back here. I don't know if it's really developed very much in this movie. Like I don't, I don't get any new deep philosophical messages about power, but they do mention the mother boxes are power. Yeah, I think BVS does a better job of exploring that with the absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Lex talking about the problem of evil. If God is all powerful, he cannot be all good. And if he's all good, then he cannot be all powerful. I think BVS does a better job of that. But I think for this movie and dealing with Justice League and these characters who can be really powerful, Wonder Woman is powerful. Cyborg can do a lot of powerful things. Aquaman you know, uh, the Flash. I mean, Batman, he can do some powerful things in some of his uh, mechanical toys. To, <laughs> so he, he might not be able to punch Steppenwolf, but he can he can do things. But uh, looking at it in terms of the heroes being powerful and then the villains also uh, being powerful as well, I, I think you could look at it that way um, in terms of the idea of power in this movie. But I would agree. I don't think it's as developed as maybe it could have been. Yeah. The only thing I could maybe get is just like we were saying before, what is more powerful, isolation or collaboration? And then the movie kind of answers that by saying collaboration is more powerful. But the power is not really the main part of it. I would say the main part of that is isolation and collaboration. Um, power is just, it's just what it happens to be, you know, something you could talk about. But yeah. Speaking of power, though, we can talk a little bit about more, the powers that we see exhibited in the fight itself. So just as an action scene, what was your reaction to this? 
Oh, it's so cool to watch. Um, I think in terms of the the visuals, it's exciting because you, you're you're seeing something happen between all of these groups, all of these tribes, and and it it's neat to see a little bit of the past history. We we know we're spending time with some of these characters in the present, but it's neat to rewind the clock and see what happened before. Now that we have hung out with the Amazons now that we know an Atlantean. So it's neat to go and see what these other groups of characters had experienced before and that there was another threat that had happened before. So I think all of the action sequences are great. Steppenwolf is tearing people up. There's a Green Lantern who does some awesome stuff. Um, and I liked seeing the gods in action. This is the this is an interesting um difference between this and Wonder Woman when we find out that Ares kills all the gods. Well, here he's having to team up with all of them, because I think Ares is in the cast list. He's having to team up with all the gods to fight another threat. So at one point, they were united in terms of having to save themselves. So I, I like getting to see that. I think it's an exciting sequence, but I uh, I think also just learning about everything is also very fun for me, just to, to hear what they're trying to develop with that. But uh, as, a, as a visual sequence, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think the scene looks good, um, has a big scope to it. Uh, yeah, it's fun seeing the Amazons again, side by side with mankind, that sort of thing. Uh, this would be before they were, you know, isolated on the island is how I took it. I think Diana says something about that, like, since the unity when mankind and Atlanteans and Amazons were able to defeat the invasion. Since then, the Amazons have been isolated on this island, you know, away from everybody else. That's part of the isolation that's kind of happened since. But yeah, the action scene works well. I like seeing the Amazons on horseback. We don't get a really good, like, sense of the Atlanteans, but we know the Atlanteans are mixed in there. Um, we know we can see some tridents or quindents happen in. Um, and then after after the battle, when they you know, have the mother box, we can get a more clear picture that the Atlanteans were involved but yeah, the, to me, the ones that stand out are the Amazons, just the scope of the battle, and then the Green Lantern and the gods, like you said, the old gods um, doing the fighting. And yeah, really fun to watch. Um, so I'm a marginal Green Lantern fan. I'm, I've read some of the comic books, but definitely not a lot of them. I do look forward to Green Lantern somehow in this universe in the future. Um, but how do you place yourself in terms of relation to Green Lantern and then this particular Green Lantern that we see here? I do like Green Lantern. I'm not an expert. I have read a couple of Green Lantern books, and uh, I have a, a friend of mine has a little boy who loves Green Lantern, and so I've learned about Green Lantern things so I can talk to him. But uh, so the this sequence actually taught me about a new Green Lantern who I didn't know. The Green Lantern in the sequence is actually, uh, I guess it's Yalen or Yalen Gurr from Space Sector 2814, which is notable because a lot of famous Green Lanterns are from that space sector. Avin Sur, Hal Jordan, Guy Gardner, Jon Stewart, Simon Baz, Jessica Cruz. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the big name Green Lanterns are from that space sector. So Sounds like our space sector. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's neat that sad as it is to see a Yalinger die, his ring flies off his finger in typical Green Lantern lore that the, the ring is going to go find someone else to attach itself to. Mm. So I, I wonder what happened after that, who, who it went to. But it's, it's a neat way to show that the lanterns existed and that they took part in helping to save Earth. 
Yeah, and I think the way that the constructs looked were really good. I know this is a short little um, you know, glimpse of the Green Lantern, but if there is a future Green Lantern movie, I think they could look at how the constructs were rendered in terms of the special effects, and I think it was pretty good. And I also liked on Green Lantern, like as he's dying, I didn't like that he was dying, but as he was dying, you know how the Green Lantern projects like a light construct Green Lantern symbol, like just a few inches above his chest. Mm. I think like Jeff Johns, when he like took over and did the Green Lantern rebirth and stuff, I think they might have uh, constructed that idea of the symbol kind of being outside of the, the suit itself and it being kind of a light construct all itself. But I liked it how that green light symbol just slowly melted into his chest and then like disappeared. Yeah. I thought that was just a cool little moment to kind of represent the death. Yeah, that's interesting. It doesn't go out of him. It goes into him like he he takes yeah. it inside of him. That's that's actually a really profound thought <laughs> that it becomes one with him. Yeah, or the it's like all kind of soaking back into the ring, like so from mm. his body and then back into the ring and then it takes off. But yeah, I just like that small little visual touch, you know, that is easy to overlook, but I think it's nice that they put that in there. Yeah. Yeah, it is cool to see uh, Zeus and Artemis, you know, shooting the bow and arrow. And then I think Ares is the one who also has an axe, and he comes at Steppenwolf, so it's nice to see the axe versus axe kind of thing. And uh, for me, one question I have about this is really, even with all those people coming together, could they really have defeated Steppenwolf and them? Because the the one thing I notice is, man, Steppenwolf really had air superiority. Uh, The (laughs) parademons are flying, and there's a whole fleet of spaceships. To me... I don't know a lot about war games and that sort of thing, but usually if you have total air superiority, I think usually you're kind of favored to win the battle. But I guess maybe if you have if you have Zeus on your team, maybe that's a that's something that <laughs> the the war textbooks don't take into account. Yeah, well, uh, from what I learned from Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, you want to have the higher ground. <laughs> so uh, I, I do think that Steppenwolf does have the advantage of his big flight you know, tank, whatever that thing is called, that spaceship mm-hmm. uh, that, that is hovering in the air. But yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, they definitely didn't defeat him. They didn't kill him. They didn't get, they got rid of him only because he had to retreat. So I guess in this particular instance, they didn't need to fully get rid of all the parademons and Steppenwolf. They just needed to make him go away Mm -hmm. so uh they they did end up accomplishing that and what i thought was really um interesting about all of these groups coming together especially the old gods and uh, mankind i thought it was it was a nice twist on what happens in batman v superman where you have a god versus man scenario Mm. and they're fighting each other pretty much all throughout the movie Mm -hmm. they're up against each other there's a lot of god God versus man mm-hmm. uh, talk that's going on. Definitely. And in here, when they have a threat that's of this magnitude, they come together and it's actually man and gods coming together to, to fight a bigger threat and save the world. So I think that's a, a cool way to, to look at that now in Justice League. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. BVS is definitely a lot of a lot of what's going on there is man versus God. And then in Wonder Woman, you have like women separate from men and that kind of contrast. But here in the old Age of Heroes, you're right, it was women and men and gods together, all on the same side, and that is able to, like, save the Earth and repel the threat and, you know, that sort of thing. It was our own unity, so to speak. Um, and obviously that's kind of like a an ancient precursor, like the Justice League, you could say, okay, that's going to be the new Age of Heroes, 
where we need to come together again. We need to bring a team together and be all on the same side again. So, you know, there's some definitely nice potential here for some like deeper level stuff. And, you know, in scenes like this, I think they lay some groundwork that can work nicely, but I just don't think a lot of it is carried through like the movie overall. But I can definitely find some of those connections. Um, and that's part of why I'm okay with Justice League on one level, just talking about the movie overall. The time when, when I get down on Justice League is just when I compare it to what could have happened or what could have been the follow-up to BBS. Yeah, I think that's the difference in objectively looking at the movie that you're presented with versus the, the movie that we think we know about. It is tough to do, even even for me. I, I have trouble with that as well. Because I, I do think there's a lot of potential and a lot of good things, especially in the sequence. But I, I think there are some things that I wish had <laughs> wish had been uh, paid more attention to. But mm-hmm. but since we were talking about uh, mankind and the, the women and the gods, I, I think that was a great point that you made, Sam, about the, the women and how they uh, participated. Um, I was a little disappointed with Bruce, though, in this scene when he and Diana are talking by the lake. And he says, I wouldn't count on the tribes of men. We tend to act like uh, the doomsday clock has a snooze button. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was uh, was contradictory to what we had seen out of Bruce Wayne in BBS at the ending when he talks about how uh, mankind uh, can be better, that we have to, that, you know, even though we kill each other, do all these bad things, we can we can be better. Mm-hmm. And here he is basically being uh, derogatory about mankind and yeah. looking down on uh, the the human race as, as people you can't count on. So I thought that was a strange turn for Bruce in the scene. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think people who looked as deeply and as closely as we have to the character development and where people are in BVS, I don't think would write that line. Uh, in Justice League, because yeah, you're right. Like the whole point of the end of, of BVS is he now has faith actually in mankind and the future and doing better and that sort of thing. And here he's just yeah, very flippantly kind of saying like, ah, man, they're not. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so I, I totally agree with you. Like he's just flippantly disregarding his whole character arc that you know at the end of BVS. Yeah, that's that's super disappointing for me. And I also I kind of get agitated at that whole line. Well, the the second half of that line where he says we tend to act like the doomsday clock has a snooze button. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if people remember, but I remember before this movie came out, like right before it came out or as it was coming out, the Doomsday Clock limited series written by Jeff Johns was coming out in DC Comics. And I just yeah, it started then, and it's actually still going on because it's just taking a long time to come out. But yeah, Jeff Johns Doomsday Clock. And I, I just, I thought, uh, well, all right. So there, there are a couple ways you could read that line. You could read it as an homage to Watchmen, Zack Snyder's Watchmen, which actually features a literal Doomsday Clock. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could see it as an homage to Zack and his Watchmen adaptation, but you could also see it as Jeff Johns putting his own creative work into the movie to promote it and that, that really kind of bothers me yeah. or just as an inside joke to himself like hey yeah doomsday clock that's my book that i'm writing yeah which is it, connected to Watchmen, but yeah he could be putting it in there just as a 
this is fun to reference my own material. Wink, wink, go buy the yeah. uh, Doomsday Clock comics yeah. after you see Justice League. <laughs> um, but it also could just be a, a nod to, you know, just the the idea of a Doomsday Clock. That, yeah. um, And it could be a reference back to Doomsday from Batman v Superman. There are multiple ways to see it, but it does rub me the wrong way a little bit because it feels like Jeff Johns inserting himself into the movie, and I don't much care for that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, yeah, that's that's my issue with that line. Yeah, my issue with the line is the snooze button. So, like, I get it. A clock has a snooze button. So, doomsday clock. Okay, snooze button. But I just feel like snooze button is just a bad phrase for, like, a movie that I'm trying to be kind of serious about and really, like, to get into and stuff. And also doesn't feel like a very Batman-like thing. So, Bruce Wayne here, there's actually a few things he says that I don't feel like are very Bruce Wayne kinds of things. Like, earlier he said, oh, yeah, I've, I met a parademon. We didn't hit it off. Or uh, when he says, like, oh, yeah, I don't think we're getting the band get back together again. And then this snooze button thing, I'm like, to me, just none of those. Maybe it's just my relationship with Bruce Wayne, but none of those to me sound like how Bruce Wayne would actually be having this conversation. Uh, yeah, I can I can agree with that. And it's, it's funny to think about Bruce Wayne and a snooze button because I imagine Bruce Wayne never hits that snooze button. Mm-hmm. If he sleeps at all, <laughs> he probably gets up when his alarm clock goes off. He probably doesn't snooze for nine more minutes. Uh, because he's very disciplined and he has to, you know, he has places to be and things to do. Uh, so I, I don't imagine that Bruce Wayne does a lot with the snooze button, but maybe he's using this as a, a derogatory comment towards how flippant or how um, careless mankind is about doomsdays and apocalyptic uh, yeah. situations. Maybe people just want to keep pushing it back, you know, pushing it back and not worrying about it and not and procrastinating and not really dealing with what's happening. So I can I can see it, but it also doesn't make sense for Bruce Wayne as a character because I don't think Bruce Wayne would uh, hit that snooze button. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually okay with the idea that's being construed here about like just being skeptical in mankind and whether they'll take the threat seriously enough. Um, I think that's fair and that's commentary on the real world. But just the attitude with which he comes at it and then the actual phrasing that he says it, to me, is not quite working. But so a couple more things just in the scene. One is the disbursement of the mother boxes to the three different um, groups. And then we'll just wrap up with the last little bit of dialogue here where Diana talks about leadership and risking people's lives. So um, first, let's go back to the mother boxes, though. So the last part of the history lesson, um, and you alluded to it already a little bit, but um, is the sending the boxes to the three places, so to the Amazons. I think it's kind of nice to see the younger-looking Hippolyta and getting some of that historical perspective of the Amazons. And by the way, it's nice to have a you know basically immortal set of people that Diana can be connected to so that we can pass down this history from like you know millennia ago. Um, so I think that's kind of nice to have the Amazons around for that reason. And then we have the mother box that goes to Atlantis, which is very interesting to see as we head into a forthcoming movie from James Wan. And then we have the mother box that's buried by mankind. Uh, And for me, the thing I noticed about the mankind burial is, well, two things. One is just having the box down there in the ground and then the soil coming onto the box immediately makes me think of Clark Kent being buried in, in BVS just because that scene was filmed, you know, in a way that just brings it to mind for me. And that does have some meaning because currently 
Clark Kent is buried in the ground, just like this mother box was buried in the ground. And then there's this conversation of, you know, we don't want men to be tempted to try to use its power, but pretty soon Bruce is going to try to use the power and he's going to try to bring Clark Kent out of the grave. And like a mother box, Superman has a lot of power. And when I guess you could even, I guess you could even tie this to the unity aspect of the mother boxes when the, you know, mother boxes are powerful on their own, but when they get put together, they are much more powerful. So it could be a referencing or alluding to Clark's relationship to the team. But I think that's that's a good point that, um, you know, mankind buries the mother box to not use the power. But Bruce actually, he doesn't uh, necessarily dig up a mother box, but he does come into contact with one and, uh, and in possession of one to use it to uh, to actually use its power. That That's what he wants to do with it. So, yeah, I, I do think the, the, the digging... Um, or throwing the dirt back into that hole, I think it has a lot more meaning to it than just throwing some dirt in there. Yeah, and then if we do make the kind of connection of the mother box in the ground and Clark in the ground, so Clark is kind of like this also supreme power, and then Diana's saying, you know, there's this danger in trying to use it for mankind, we can just read that in as, oh, maybe we should be worried when Bruce is trying to revive Superman because maybe he's playing with powers that he doesn't really understand. The Mother Box, but also actually Clark, like Superman himself, is a power that Bruce is trying to kind of manipulate and bring back and might be sort of out of his control, or he might be reaching a little bit higher than he should. So, yeah, to me that's an interesting visual connection here that actually does make some sense later in the movie as well. Um, But I wanted to see if you have any thoughts about Atlantis um, or, you know, if you see any connections that you want to look for in the next movie that's coming out very soon. I just want to see more about how they live under the water and how they operate, how what their cities look like, because uh, we, we just got kind of a little look into a, a room that contained the mother box, so we didn't get to see much about how the Atlanteans live, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it was nice to just at least go there for a visit. We, have, we haven't uh, spent a lot of time there yet, but we got to visit enough that it made me intrigued to want to see more. Yeah, and to see this ancient king um, in Atlantis, that'll be interesting to see if you know his crown or anything like that connects into the, the new movie. That's a good point, because uh, Arthur does become king of Atlantis at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, let's wrap up here with the last little part of the dialogue. So um, Bruce and Diana were talking about the Doomsday Clock and that sort of thing. Um, Bruce is skeptical of mankind, but then they talk about um, recruiting some new members to their team. So Bruce says he's located the Barry Allen, uh, and then he says he's kind of hoping that Diana will reach out to Victor Stone. Um, so this is kind of nice, and this you know is just functional to move the plot forward. Like, okay, Bruce and Diana are on the same page now. They're going to reach out, try to bring more people onto the team. But then Diana has this kind of concern about leadership where she says, we're asking people we don't know to risk their lives. And so that connects back to Wonder Woman where she basically became the leader of these odd fellows but steve ended up dying in their mission and that might still be weighing on her like oh when you're a leader you have other people's lives in your hand and for her to become such sort of the co-leader of the justice league she has to come to terms with that yeah and bruce has a history too of asking people to risk their lives mm-hmm. um like we we know he at least had one robin he had a robin who died and risked his life to the point where he lost it yeah so they they both have lost people enough to realize that this kind of thing is very serious yeah and i think this has played well because bruce is like i know that's how this works like he has already had to come to terms with 
the pains and dangers of leadership like this. But Diana hasn't come to those terms yet, so that will be a dynamic that plays out between them uh, later on in the movie as well. And uh, Diana specifically is supposed to look up Victor Stone, and so that goes into the ending of the scene here. Well, what I think is uh, a cool way to end this scene is that Bruce and Diana are talking about recruiting these other people to join their team, and uh, right as they do that and they're about to leave, Diana looks over her shoulder and she sees uh, something. We don't know at that moment what she sees, but then we get the reveal that Cyborg is... uh, standing in the bushes spying on them that that to me like i i get that they're trying to connect them and i think it's cool that diana has a moment where she she's on to him and he doesn't know it but i also kind of wonder why he physically why victor needs to physically be there he's as cyborg he can interact with all kinds of technology and in this scene bruce has his smartphone so i don't know why he couldn't have just hacked into now of course this this is me assuming things about cyborg's (laughs) powers but couldn't he have hacked into the smartphone and listened in on their conversation or gotten some kind of video feed off of his camera or something Uh, i i just thought it was a little bit uh corny hiding in the bushes uh spying on them but that's that's just my personal take on it yeah i never thought of the phone angle but that does kind of make sense um like that he is always listening but he's listening in ways that you kind of don't realize rather than very low tech version of listening which is to actually just stand with an earshot <laughs> i hadn't really thought of that but it is kind of a good point well we'd see him interact with diana later in in a te- technological way uh, so maybe they didn't want to do do that kind of thing just yet but it, it was something i thought about Yeah, Uh, I mean, the one thing that to me does make sense is that Cyborg just found out about the Batcave and about Bruce Wayne's, you know, lake house here. So to me, it would make sense sense that he might just go kind of scope out the area and stuff. And then maybe it just so happened that Bruce and Diana were actually there talking about this. Yeah, that could could be the case. I mean, it makes sense that he would want to follow up and try to find out more about Bruce Wayne and about the Batcave and all that stuff. And then this now helps him realize, oh, it's Diana Prince. Maybe I'll check out her as well. And then he figures out that that's Wonder Woman and everything. But it's also a bit weird that Bruce doesn't have, like, some security around his lake. um, (laughs) Because that lake goes right up. You know, that is an entrance to the Batcave. Goes to the Batcave, yeah. it seems like he would have a lot of motion detectors or some sort of high-tech security to kind of know if somebody was lurking in the forest. Well, I well, uh, Diana is able to get in past his security, uh, so I guess it, True, yeah. it doesn't. Uh, uh, yeah, it, Cyborg could make quick work of whatever it was. Yeah, maybe maybe Cyborg can figure it out too. <laughs> and maybe even if there was security, Cyborg could uh, power it down. Maybe that maybe that's the case too. Yeah, well, it's good uh, and. Diana will eventually follow up with Vic, and then we also know that Bruce is going to follow up with Barry Allen. So that does set us up for the next few scenes. But I think we'll call that good for our analysis here. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash jlupodcast. We have a giveaway happening right now for BVS Ultimate Edition Blu-ray combo pack. Um, You can see the details for how to enter that giveaway on Patreon, and our patrons are already entered, of course. 
Also, if you go to Patreon, you can hear my review of Teen Titans Go to the Movies. And we have actually just made it official that we're going to be doing a Man of Steel analysis. So people who have been asking about that for a long time, (laughs) we are actually going to go ahead and and do that. Man of Steel is a film that holds up really well. The whole team is pretty excited to just go back in detail and look through Man of Steel. So we're going to be doing that soon. Um, Patrons at the $4 level um, will be able to have access to that analysis um, starting this month and then continuing on from there. Um, so Rebecca, I want to give you a chance to just let listeners know where else they can find you. Cause you have a few things going on besides this. Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you to the patrons who, um, have made the man of steel analysis happen. And, uh, what a gift for someone to, <laughs> to get the BVS ultimate edition. That is a good giveaway. Uh, well, for me, you can check me out at Supergirl Radio. It's a podcast that uh, covers the CW's uh, Supergirl TV series. So if you're into Supergirl, check us out. There are some some cool things coming this way. Um, there's the big Elseworlds crossover DC TV podcast, which is our podcasting network, is having a big crossover discussion live on Mixler.com slash DCTV podcast on December 12th at 9 p.m. Eastern. So if you're into the Elseworlds part of that crossover, check it out. Uh, so yeah, if you like Supergirl and you like uh, the CW's uh, Arrowverse, which I wish uh, there was another way to say that, but I think most people <laughs> <laughs> use Arrowverse. If you like the Arrowverse, uh, check us out. All right, great. And again, follow the show at JLU Podcast, and I'm at Otten Sam. Thanks again for listening.